Good morning. Isn't it good to be here this morning, gathered together with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, have fellowship, study God's Word? I'm grateful to see you. Let's start by, um, let's start by a word of prayer. If you will pray with me. Father in heaven, we just come to you. We just rejoice. We give you thanks that you've called us to yourself, first of all. Um, you are holy. Lord, you are, you are set apart. You are so good. Father, we just thank you that you've called us to yourself, through your son, Jesus Christ, that there's repentance and forgiveness of sins. Lord, that there's, um, there's just a thousand pleasures, thousands and thousands of pleasures in your presence. Father, we thank you that we, we share this intimacy with you and with one another. Lord, we rejoice that we're here today uh, just for the fellowship and the love that you show us. And Lord, for the correction and the teaching and the admonition that we we look forward to hearing this morning uh, the entire day that we're here. Father, we also thank you that, um, Lord, that you've, you've called us to a purpose to stewardship um, of all the resources you give us, our health, our time, um, our monies. And Father, we do pray that at this time as we, as we study about this, as we read what your word has to say, as we think about it, that you would change our hearts, that we would think, um, Lord, from a, through a gospel lens and what you've called us to, how, how we're supposed to lay our lives down and come and follow after you, after your son, Jesus. We thank you so much for your grace and your mercies. We do pray that you'd bless our time. We pray all this by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we're, we're starting our fourth class on stewardship. And specifically, um, today we'll be talking about spending and budgeting. Um, you know, it's funny, when we, we talk about budgeting... The, um, there's a lot of ideas that come to mind. How many of you have uh, spent time, uh, maybe an afternoon, putting together a great budget worksheet, and you've gone over it, and then uh, maybe you printed a copy, maybe you've uh, gone over it with a friend or a parent or a sibling or a spouse, and then um, you've got a great plan you print that out, you put it in a file folder, and it's the last time you see it. It's, um, and I would love to say this morning that I've got a foolproof plan for you to go create a budget and to always uh, do it in a way that pleases God and honors Him um, and give that to you in a document and give it to you with buckets and percentages, and you would know just how to go and do it. But that's, you know, if you think about it, that's a very legalistic way to approach our money. And, um, and, and this morning, I hope to flip it on its head when you think about budgeting a little bit and ask yourself some bigger questions about how you spend your money and, um, and what, your, what, what it says about your heart, what it says about your relationship with God. Um, and just thinking about how we, how we spend our money, budgeting and spending. I got a question for you. And again, would love some interaction um, I'm going to give you time to answer, which means we're waiting each other out. And, uh, and whoever, whoever speaks first loses, okay? So and I'm waiting on an answer. So how should the gospel change how we spend our money? Let me restate that. I hope you heard it. How does the gospel change how we spend our money? But let me say it like this. How does the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, a member of the Trinity, was born, he lived, he was perfectly obedient to God. He did all things that pleased God. God spoke from heaven, said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then 
that he died in our place, a sinner's death. He was crucified, put to shame before all these men openly, and that he died, he was buried in a borrowed tomb, he was resurrected, and in doing so, he brought us into, once we believe and repent, he brought us into God's presence as God's children, as his brothers and sisters, and we're to share in that heavenly calling. How does that message, the gospel message, change how you spend your money? Christy, say that again. Yeah, so she said it should have been us receiving that punishment. It should have been us on the cross. And yet, and so we owe him everything. So when we think about how we spend our money practically, we should start with that, that mindset that we talked about from, from week one. It's all his. What other impact? So it makes, she said it makes you think that we should spend more sacrificially um, towards the Lord instead of just on other things. So, in other words, it's easy to waste money, isn't it? Waste resources. So do we think of it that way? So we see a motive. We see an outcome. Our motives should change once we're born again. And, and our motives are made clear to us even by the action we take and how we spend. So, in many ways... Our goal this morning is to answer that question. We want to understand how our use of money should look different because of the gospel. How radically should our lives be changed and our spending habits uh, change once we're born again? See, our priorities should be turned upside down. Rather than being rich and comfortable in this world, our chief end, our chief concern should be, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So let's turn to Proverbs chapter 30. I think that in Proverbs chapter 30, we really get to the heart of this. These are the words of Agur. I don't know if I said that right, but I made a good try. Agur. Proverbs 30, we're going to look at verses 8 and 9, spend a little bit of time there. Here he says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and still and profane the name of my God. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Scripture is pretty indifferent toward the moral value of money. It can be used for enormous good in this life, good that will last until and through eternity. And yet, as Paul writes to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, 1 Timothy 6.10. So money is a wonderful tool. It's a wonderful servant, and it's a terrible master. So today we want to figure out how to master money rather than money master you. We'll start by reviewing basic principles that we've talked about in the last few weeks. Then we're going to discuss how we should spend with a focus on God calling each of us
to a certain lifestyle. And then we're going to cap off with a discussion of budgeting and then finish by talking about stewardship as a church. So I went pretty quick. Real quick, we're going to review what we've talked about. After we review what we talked about, those principles that we've, tried to been, we've been building upon, we're going to disp- discuss how we should spend with a focus on what lifestyle God's calling you to. Then we're going to cap that off with a discussion on budgeting. And then we'll finish thinking about stewardship as a church family. How do we do that with one another? How do we talk about budgeting and spending together? So in review, basic principles that we've talked about the last few weeks. The first thing that we said in week one was everything belongs to God. Your time, your health, your resources, your money, it's all His. So oftentimes we think about our money What's in our bank account? What's in our 401k? What's in our uh, pocket? We think of it um, in isolation from the rest of God's calling on our lives. And yet it's all God's. We're stewards. So that's the second principle. God has made you a steward of all that you have. You will be called to give an account for your stewardship. And there are many ways to act out this stewardship as Christians in this world. But we all have the same goal. And our goal should be to make the most of every opportunity for the glory of God. The third principle Clay talked about last week, hoarding is spiritually damaging. God's given you a certain amount of money. Some of that you need to spend. Some, if you have opportunity, you should save for the future. That might be as simple as opening up a savings account or perhaps investing in your business or in some other opportunity. But the rest you need to give away. Keeping for yourself what you don't need is an attempt, as Jesus says, to serve two masters, to serve both God and money. So we should spend. We should save. We should give. Today is spending. Next week, we're going to talk about saving. Next week, we're going to talk about saving and debt. It's a fun lesson. I drew the short straw with Clay. He didn't want to talk about budgeting. So anyway, next week's... Finally... Finally, well, I don't, who wants to stand up here and talk about budgeting? I mean, gosh, I told Ashley this morning, I know who the biggest hypocrite at church is. So finally, and this is also a repeat from last week. Remember, we asked the question, how much should we give? How much should we give? And the answer to that was we should give until the next dollar we would have given away would actually bring more glory to God if we spend it on our own needs. That's a radical concept. It's all about showing off God as good. So there you go. That's the recap. Next, how much should you spend? How much should you spend? Brings us to spending. How much money, if we're stewards of what God's given us, and if it all belongs to him, how much money should we spend on ourselves? Certainly not all of it. So I want you to imagine for a second that you go out and you have, uh, you have a retirement, you have a nest egg, and you give it to a financial manager, and, and he's going to take a certain cut to cover his expenses. And a year later, you discover that the money's all gone. His cut was 100%. What's your reaction? He was a pretty bad steward, wasn't he? That's crazy. That's not why we give him the money to give him all of it and let him just spend it all on his own 
whims and wishes. He was to invest it for you, not spend it on himself. But as Christians, do we do the same thing? God, God entrusts us with these resources, and we say, this is mine. I spend it all on me. So do we do the same way? So let's reframe the question, and instead of thinking about how much should I spend, I want to turn it on its head a little bit. Before we do, I want you to think back about what we read in Proverbs 30. Think about the question, or, or think about the answer to the question, feed me with the food that I need. Feed me with the food that I need. But even that can be pretty challenging to answer, right? How much food do you really need? Are we trying to avoid starvation? Are we trying to be comfortable? It's really just not as simple as it appears. You know, even, even worldly men recognize that every dollar above and beyond food, clothing, and shelter is useless. Warren Buffett, you may know who Warren Buffett is. He's, he's one of the, you know, the Oracle of Omaha, one of the wealthiest men. He said that every dollar is a claim, and it's only a claim against what you need. And every dollar above and beyond what you need is a useless claim. You think about dollars that way? Just a tool. So let's flip that question on his head a little bit. And instead of saying, how much should I spend, I really want you to get your mind around and your heart around this question. What lifestyle has God called you to? Because oftentimes we think about, what do I need? And we, we start to answer that question at the most granular lever, uh, level. Do I, do I need a Big Mac off the dollar menu? Or do I need a Feltner's hamburger? What do they cost, like 13 bucks? Feltner's Burger. Feltner's Burger. You know, from Feltner's? The, well, it, they're expensive hamburgers. The, uh, and they're the best, right? So what do I really need? Do I need to fly home for Christmas? Or should I just drive? You know, back and forth. What are our needs? But that doesn't really provide with a lot of framework for decision making. And really, you get tied up in knots. So instead, I think we're better off starting from the top level and working our way down what lifestyle has God called me to? And we're going to talk about six principles to think about that through. When, when, the, when the question is, how much do I need? It, it really allows us to figure out how much should I spend. I'm sorry, what's my lifestyle helps me figure out what do I need, which also helps me figure out how much do I spend. So when I say what lifestyle, here's what I mean by that. I mean spending habits that you're accustomed to. So you're already living a certain lifestyle based on your spending. All of us are, right? And in actuality, you know, this is a conversation I was having before we started. Some of our lifestyles were pretty, pretty miserly with how we spend. And then how much we save into our emergency fund and how much resources we have put back and how much we pinch pennies, that can actually be pretty godless, right? That can be focused on the things of this world. And on the other hand, the other extreme, the other ditch would be just materialism, and I need it all. I'm that, I'm that money manager that has a 100% fee, right? And so we don't want to fall into either one of those, those ditches. So the two dangers as we think about, you know, the lifestyle that we've been called to, whether it's the type of family that takes out-of-town vacations, so you need transportation to get there, where you buy a house, 
And so if you buy a house in a certain neighborhood, at a certain vicinity, in a certain location, it could be more expensive than a house, you know, somewhere else. The, um, we think about that lifestyle, it starts to build the framework out, how much am I going to need to support this lifestyle, right? All right, so there's two dangers. Before we get into that, there's two dangers. First of all, the first danger is that our lifestyle determines a set of needs if it exceeds our income. So this is a very American problem, isn't it? To spend 100% of the paycheck or 110% of the paycheck on a lifestyle that your income really doesn't support. I can assure you, without any doubt, without any hesitation, that, um, that that's not what God's calling you to. You know, there may be the exception that all of a sudden there's a temporary circumstance like a medical issue or unemployment where your income is less than what your spending is. But a lifestyle that requires a greater income than what you currently get is not what God's calling you to. So if you can't support your most basic obligations, then he may be calling you to look for a job that pays more. Um, he may be calling you, calling you just to make a big, drastic change in your lifestyle. So it reminds me of a skit. Y'all remember the skit that Steve Martin did on Saturday Night Live? Stephen Martin. It's a fake ad about a revolutionary money-making book called Don't Buy Stuff You Can't Afford. <laughs> Y'all remember it. Steve Martin, he, to him, it's complicated and confusing, and he asks, but what if I want something and I don't have any money? And the voice, the announcer says, it's in the book. The book's only one page long. If you don't have any money, you shouldn't buy anything. So, you know, classic American Steve Martin scratching his head, and he says, I don't get it. I don't get that. But it's simple, isn't it? God is not calling you to need more than you make. So, in all sincerity, if you feel that your needs exceed your income, if that's why, where you find yourself today, then you need to make it a point by the end of the day tomorrow to have scheduled time with a Christian friend, a mentor, someone that you can talk through and get your finances together because God's not calling us to live that way. So the other danger, here's the other danger, is that when our, our income rises, oftentimes our needs rise inexorably with our, with our income. Our needs, as our income rises, can compound faster our perceived needs than what our income is. So there's some interesting research on this. If you look across the American public, who do you think the group is that is most generous with charitable giving? It's the wealthiest, okay? They have the most resources. It's the wealthiest. But the group that, that is next isn't the middle class. The group that's the... Next most generous is the working poor. That's pretty fascinating, isn't it? So apparently as one moves from, from the lowest income to middle class, perceived needs are rising faster than income, and people become less generous. So it's not so much the difference is the poor and the middle class think of themselves as more stingy or as more poor. It's just that both groups think of themselves as being as generous as possible, but as income goes up, perceived need changes. So to one group, a second luxury car, I mean, a second car is a luxury. To the second, it's a need. Same with vacations. Same with private education. It's amazing to see how when family income increases, 
perceived needs increase, which in turn are greater obligations, which limits the freedom, and it also limits the amount of discretionary income that they had before, what they can give, and how much liberty they have in their, their budgets. So I've seen families that earn fifty to 100000 a year out-save and out-give families that earned one hundred and fifty to 250000 a year. So your lifestyle will largely consist of what you consider to be necessities. But the key is to realize that what you consider necessary is actually highly subjective. So that brings us to our question, what lifestyle is God calling you to? So to summarize those two dangers, lifestyle should not be more than income, and increases in income shouldn't necessarily translate into increases in lifestyle. I know one family that determined in their 20s, when they were in their 20s, they were new to their careers, and they determined then what their budget was going to be, the amount of money that they were going to spend to run their household. And they decided that any increases from then going forward would be meant for investment opportunities, and that might be investment opportunities for the family or investment opportunities in the kingdom of God. So all bonuses, raises, all that increase, all that excess, they were thinking strategically about where that should go, and they were still living or their goal was to live on what they were earning in their 20s. I think that's a lofty goal. Not a, God doesn't call everybody to that, but that's, um, isn't that a great way to think about things? So how do you choose a lifestyle? So occasionally God will speak supernaturally, and he'll call someone to go out into the desert and to eat locusts and honey, which doesn't sound like an expensive proposition. Um, but he doesn't, he doesn't call us all to that. So, but we need to steep our values in scriptures. We need to pray for wisdom. We need to get counsel from others. And we need, to, we need to use the good sense that he's given us to seek first his kingdom. And all that we keep, in all of that, we need to keep our goal clearly in mind. And that's to use every gift, every opportunity, every relationship, every dollar that we have to proclaim the goodness of God. So, if you have kids... You may need to spend some money to provide for them. If you enjoy bicycling, maybe it's a good use of your money to buy a bike so that you can refresh yourself and enjoy what God has given you. First um, Timothy says, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So do we view the things that we've been provided with that way? So your goal, here's your goal. Determine what lifestyle will make the most of your life on this planet for God's glory. Is it a lifestyle of penny pinching so you can live in a strategic place? Is it a life with long hours at work with plenty of money? Is it a life of substance, of generosity in a comfortable country like America, in the developing world? How do you figure that out? So here we're going to get to the meat of our lesson today, six principles to use when choosing a lifestyle. So first of all, lifestyle is often defined in big pieces. But over time, it's going to incrementally slide. So since you figured out where you're going to live, maybe in the city of Fayetteville, maybe close to the college campus where you attend church, well, now you've defined what your mortgage is going to be, right? And you've probably also defined where your kids are going to go to school, whether or not you need 
two cars, or can you get by with one car, and so on. So you got to take those decisions seriously. So you younger people, you think about that. Where you determine to live is going to have a big impact on what your baseline needs are. But recognize that as you get older, the upper pressure on your lifestyle as your income grows is going to grow through the small things. And while the small things may not be incrementally a lot of money at once, it can add up to a lot of money over the long term. And it has an impact on our spiritual walk and on our spiritual growth. So that's why we use a budget. So we're going to talk more about the budget in our next, in our next uh, section. So the second principle, and this is one that I really want you to think about, time and money are interchangeable. Time and money are interchangeable. So how do you take time that God's given you, God's given you every breath, he's given you every minute, teach us, O Lord, to number our days. How do you take time that God's given you and turn it into money? Guys, this is a softball. Get a job. Get a job. That's right. <laughs> Go to work. 40 hours a week, 9 to 5. Or is it 9 to 5? 9 to 5. It's the grind, right? The, um, so that's how we turn time into money, right? Well, there's always the exceptions. We'll talk about that in a minute. So, so you have plenty of time. So what can you do with your time? Right? Time and money are interchangeable. So how do you turn money into time? Have you thought about that? How do you turn money into time? I, I can tell you right now, if I were going to have to change out, I'm just going to use this as an example because I have a toilet pulled in my office right now because we're doing a remodel. If I were going to change out the wax ring and install the toilet, some of you guys may look at me and say, well, Ben, that's really simple. I can promise you it would be an all-day affair for Ben Evans. And every store that I went to would not have the wax seals, and I would go to every Home Depot in Lowe's in northwest Arkansas and probably have to go to Silent Springs to get it, okay? I know that, like, that's not worth my time. So I can turn my time into money by having somebody do that that knows what they're doing. I'd have to watch the YouTube video for two hours, Jeremy. So the... We can turn our money into time, so we hire somebody to come do it. Um, some of you, maybe you hire somebody to cut your grass. I mean, I think it's terrible, but you, some of you may do that, and that gets you, that gets you time. Um, to a lesser extent, money and relationships are also interchangeable. So you can build into relationships with money, right? Maybe, maybe you buy flowers for your wife, for example. Maybe you, maybe you go on a trip with someone. Or you can trade off a relationship for money, can't you? So I started my business back in 2004, and in 2006, yeah, um, it was 2007. I had three children born at that time. And I was driving home, and I was on the phone with my dad, and I was telling him, he was asking me how business was, and I was telling him about business. And I was working, you know, from 7 in the morning until 7.30 at night. And my dad said, oh, Ben, that's great. He said, you keep at it, 
And one day, your children will be grown and gone. I'm living that now. And you'll have a big, cold business to keep you company, right? So we can trade our time into money where we should have been taking that time and building it into relationships. Um, much of your lifestyle choice is going to determine what your limiting factor is. Money, time, relationships, and the other way around. So think carefully about those lifestyle choices because you'll be sacrificing one of those things. Some luxuries that godly men and women have, for example, maybe someone cleans your house, maybe you have a nice vacation, they fall into this category, turning money into time for relationships. And some sacrifices that godly men and women make also fall into this category. For example, my spouse could have taken could have gotten a job, a second job, I guess we'd call it. And we could have extra income coming into the house. She's extremely talented, extremely capable. But in doing that, she's going to be exchanging that time for the relationships that she could be building into, our children, especially the, the toddlers. So she, she can have a big impact there. So how do we think about that? We have to think carefully about those exchanges that we choose to make. Money turns into time, time into money, and both build into relationships, and both can take away from them. So the third principle that we need to think about, flexibility is a virtue. So when you think about your um, commitments, your spending, how much flexibility do you have in those commitments on a monthly basis? In James chapter 4, 13 through 17, we're told not to presume the future don't presume that God will do in the future exactly as he has in the past. Don't construct, don't build a lifestyle that would keep you from being able to take a lower-paying job or maybe to move overseas as a missionary or to shift to a single-income household if God makes a certain opportunity available to you in the future. I think that's an incredibly important principle. The fourth principle, keep the long view in mind. Keep the long view in mind. A lifetime of faithfulness is your goal, not just a week, not just a month, not just a year. Um, if you're able to, a lifestyle where you can thrive and not just survive will probably enable more fruitfulness in the long term. So I think that for those of us with families, this is an especially important question to consider. So you may be thriving on this lifestyle, but as the rest of your family, you can spoil the future by underspending. You can spoil the future by underspending. Um, say your family uh, resents you for how miserly you were, how stingy you were, and maybe you teach your children to be stingy and miserly. And at the same time, you can spoil the future by overspending, by spoiling your children or building a taste for luxury that, you shouldn't, that they can't sustain, that's unsustainable. So keep the long view in mind. The fifth principle to think about is consider your weaker brother, 1 Corinthians 8, 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So you have a tremendous amount of freedom. We have a tremendous amount of freedom in where to invest your money for God's kingdom. But some choices are going to lead others into temptation more than others. Um, you know, the calculus may work for you to have a, a personal chef and a cleaner but if nobody else in the church has a personal chef and a house cleaner, then what's it going to say to everybody else? 
um, they may not understand why you're doing it. So the benefit of you serving the Lord better may, be, may mean that you don't have a personal chef. Um, you don't want to cause others to go into that temptation. 1 Corinthians 6.12 says, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. So consider the weaker brother. You know, there's that, uh, there's that old saying. I don't think it's really fit for church, but I just can't help myself. It, uh, it says, why do, we, why do we spend money that we don't have uh, on things that we don't need to impress people we don't like? So they, it, it, but as, as Christians, we should think, when we spend our money, what does it say to our brothers and sisters in Christ? And what traps might it lead them into? And so sixth, and this is the last This is the last principle I want you to think about. Consider which opportunities are unique to you and your situation. So, for example, I think of how Evelyn and Bronson Steelwell strategically decided to buy a home decades ago, I think, that's really close to the university, right across the street from the college. College at their front porch. They've had countless impact and opportunities to engage students from all over the world with the gospel. They have children in the faith living globally. Not not everyone can do this, but but think strategically about how God might use your unique circumstances to impact your neighbor and your church, because God has a plan for all of us. So before I move on to the next subject, does anyone have any questions about those principles? I can. So, if if you did get a um, if you did get yeah, let me see. Yeah, they're right here. They're in the middle, one through six. But I still like repeating it. Lifestyle is the, is often defined in big pieces, but it can slide incrementally over time. Uh, secondly, time and money are interchangeable, as are relationships. Third is flexibility is a virtue. Fourth, keep the long view in mind. Fifth. Consider the weaker brother. And finally, consider which opportunities are unique to you. Managing a budget. So you've determined the lifestyle that you're supposed to lead. You determined how you're supposed to live in this world um, with your neighbor, with your church family. And hopefully it won't change as your income rises over time. What's the best way to manage your lifestyle? A budget, right? That word we love. Oftentimes, we think of budget as a financial tool, um, something to make sure that your checks don't bounce. Uh, I think that can be short-sighted, okay? A budget really should be considered a a contentedness tool and a communication tool. It's wise if you're single, critical if you're married. 1 Timothy 6, 8 through 10 tells us if we have food and clothing we will be content with these things. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So your budget can safeguard your contentedness, and it can protect you from ruin and destruction. So how's a, how's a budget a tool for contentedness? So first of all, it helps us, it, it restrains us from overspending. So that's the first thing we think of often. This is going to help us from overspending. Secondly, 
It helps, us, it helps protect from a false guilt or anxiety when you spend money. Saying, so oh no, the AC's out, right? The air conditioner's broken. Well, that's going to be several thousand dollars, right? But if it's in the budget, it's okay, no problem. The budget shows, it reveals how God has richly provided for all of our needs. So that's why we follow the budget. Also, it makes sure that your spending is based on what you need rather than rising with your income. So as our income goes up, we have a set budget, then we're able to look at that from year to year, and it's help that keeps us from overspending. Next, it's a communication tool. So a budget's a communication tool. It makes financial conversations strategic and proactive when you're putting your budget together rather than constraint-driven and reactive, like when the husband comes home with a new toy for the kids and the wife says, oh my gosh, that's not in the budget. It helps communicate, hey, we have room in the, in the budget. It, it also helps protect against judging your spouse. So if the spouse comes home with Jif peanut butter instead of great value peanut butter, I mean, how ungodly, right? Don't we know there's things you could do with that extra dollar? But if we're sticking to our grocery budget, it doesn't matter. It's okay to get the Jif peanut butter. So it, it makes those conversations much smaller. Um, there's some practical things to consider about the budget. And so I'm not, we're not going to dive into these. These are right here in your bulletin, but we'll go through them quickly. And if you have questions, I'm happy to talk about them. It's, under, it's on the back under, um, we just have some guidelines for managing a budget. First of all, and I think this is key, when we look at our budget, I think one of the first things that we need to do is budget for giving and saving. It should be a budget line item. We shouldn't look at our budget and say, well, this is how much I could spend every month. Our income and say, this is how much we could spend. We should look at our budget our income and say, this is how much I should, this is my saving line. This is my giving line. So think of that. I think it's helpful to do in percentages, but I, I don't want to quote percentages and all of a sudden it's gospel to you. So I think it's something to work through, but you should pay yourself. You should pay, you, you should give some type of savings, okay? Um, make sure that every dollar you have this part of the first principle or the first guideline, make sure that every dollar you save has a specific purpose. So we're not saving just to save, just for bigger barns, um, bigger storehouses, but you save for a specific purpose, and to the best of your ability, determine how much you need to save. It's a simple future value calculation. Secondly, give every dollar in your budget a biblical job description. Now, a lot of us are going to have to go home and do homework on that one. Give every dollar in your budget a biblical job description. Since I've read that, I've been trying to think of how to um, label some of my, uh, what do you call them now, subscriptions to uh, like Netflix, Prime. How, how, how can I label this a biblical you know, description? Um, see if you can identify from Scripture why each item in your budget is part of your discipleship of Christ. You know, I'll never forget, um, I called me and my brother on the phone one day in my my dad called and we conferenced my dad in, and uh, we were just talking. And my, my brother asked my dad, what are you up to? And he said, I'm trying to, I'm trying to figure out where all my money went. He said, I've got all my receipts, and I'm just adding everything up, see where all my money went. 
And my brother, it's one of the best lines I've ever heard about money. He said, Dad, a good general doesn't ask their soldiers where they've been. A good general tells his soldiers where to go. So when you think about money as a steward, are you telling your dollars where to go? Be a good general. Thirdly, let any excess in your budget at the end of the year go to giving, not savings. Because if we've already budgeted our savings and we save for what we're needing, when we have excess, we can be open-handed, we can give. That way your day-to-day decisions aren't so much about spend versus save, but spend versus give. Fourth, if you're married and it's possible, make it your ambition to budget off the husband's income alone. A couple of weeks ago, Brad talked about, it was two weeks ago, I think, maybe three, in the sermon he talked about how wonderful it is. Sometimes it's appropriate that a wife be at home with the children. Now, it's also not wrong that she has a job. And so any questions about that subject, email Brad or listen to that sermon. Really good. Fifth, include a generosity line in your budget. And I just love this idea. I've seen people do this where they they budgeted so much for generosity, and they would even get that cash out out of the bank. They'd have it in their pocket. So when they saw a need, they could meet that need with ready cash. So include a line for generosity in your budget. You know, I think that six is important. Know when to break the budget. Use your budget to understand the implications of breaking the budget and when you need to get back on track. So know when to break the budget. Sometimes it's appropriate. Um, And then also talk through your budget with a Christian friend. And I would just say if you're married, regularly with your spouse because it adds so much spice to your romance. Thank you. Okay. So next I want to think about any questions about that before we move on. Yes, we got two. Um, well, I think, you know, it's interesting you say that. She said, she said on number one, the best of your ability. I said it's easy to save for specific, you know, save for the dollars you'll need in the future and, and define it and save for that and then give away the excess. And she said, but that is hard to, to know and it's not easy to plan for what you're going to need in the future. That, and that, yeah, retirement future, yeah. So I, I understand that is a, um, that can be very complicated. And, and the reason why it can be complicated, twofold. One, there, is some, there are some, uh, some math problems you got to use to solve that, right? But the second thing is there's so many unknowns. So, so I would say you start with the simple math and you, you solve it. There's plenty of online tools. And then the second thing you do is you leave the rest to God. You be faithful with what you have today and then all the variables that you can throw in there, you just... Um, you, you use the variables as they are and, um, and leave the rest to the Lord. And there are simple rules. Hey, look, you know, if the HVAC goes out, you probably can't pay for an $8,000. Is that what they cost? I don't know. Oh. <laughs> you know? You, you, 
you may not be able to pay for a $13,000 air conditioner unit out of one paycheck, right? And at the same time, you, um, it may not be smart to finance it, uh, especially at today's interest rates. So how do, you, how do you plan for those emergencies? Well, there's some pretty simple rules that many of you can get. You know, you should have an emergency fund. And so what does that emergency fund need to look like? And if you have a properly funded emergency fund, could it possibly cover an HVAC? So just, I think that knowing those simple rules and trying, but the problem is me standing up here and saying, hey, you all need to have a three to six month emergency fund is it becomes law and people either beat themselves up because they're not there yet or people start patting themselves on the back because they've got a 12 month emergency fund, right? And instead, we need to think about the principles of what's my heart tied to? What am I loving? What do I look forward to? What are my priorities here? It makes sense. Somebody else had a question, Ray? That's so good. Yeah. Did y'all hear Ray? So what he said was that um, the, the, the charge to give your budget a biblical job description, um, every dollar in your budget a biblical job description, was, has been really good for, for them. And one, specifically, one specific category for, for him and Brenda, y'all been married 32 years. Did I get that right? 37. 37 was... Um, to even budget for marriage, investing in that on a regular basis. I mean, if you can, if you can find a biblical job description for it, I think it needs to be there, and, and absolutely that's one, you know? And so I think that's, uh, and he said sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but it's a dollar amount, but it's always been beneficial to them. So look through your budget. I think that's a really, if you wanted something to put your teeth into, I think that one tip is something to go home and do. Look at what your, um, where your money's going and say, okay, can I give it a biblical job description? And then Amazon loses 100 memberships. Okay. I'm joking. You could use that for God's glory. All right, so any other questions? Yes. Miss Anita. So you're saying number five, it can be, and we're going back up to the, the six principles to choose when using a lifestyle, consider the weaker brother. And you said, and so what's your, are you making a statement? It can be, it, this is a real challenge or is there a question? Yeah. 
Oh, it can be a real challenge. You know, I'll never forget how discouraging it was to me. I mean, I thought I was giving my kids a great upbringing, right? And one time we went to someone else's house, and we got in the car, and we were leaving, and my kids, of course, they're kids, right? They said, wow, they must be really rich. And I'm sitting here thinking, y'all are really rich, you know? I mean, we order from Domino's sometimes. But the... uh, but just even the, you know, out, of the, out of the lips of children, you know, they, they see, right? We see, and it's not like our hearts don't have those same feelings, you know? And so I think it is, I think this is a challenge um, in, in two ways. One, it can be a challenge in, in you know, when you, when you buy a home, when you purchase your vehicles, um, all things are lawful, but where's your heart in it, you know? Um, are you trying to impress people? Is there pride there? And that's what we really want to get to next. And that's a perfect lead-in. Stewardship is a community project. So we've thought about how a budget helps to be strategic and proactive in our spending and our lifestyle. But as we've gone along, you've probably noticed how complex and challenging many of these decisions are. So before we're done, let's think about this. One last thought. Um, We should be including others on these decisions. We have a considerable opportunity Look around you. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is your family. And we have a considerable opportunity in having conversations about how we spend our money as a normal part of life. We're we're willing to be open, or we should be willing to be open, with struggles about anger, our food, our pornography, with pride. But we so rarely talk about the love of money or how much we give, or how much money we spend. It seems strange, really, to start thinking about talking with others about that. Why would you be transparent about everything else in your life? Or why would we feel it as a biblical call, a church duty, to be transparent about everything in our life except money, especially when Jesus has so much to say about money? So we should talk about money as a church with one another, in discipling, really, in discipling relationships, in small groups, with friends, trusted friends. We should bring others in to see what we're spending, to see what we're giving. And we should be willing to have hard conversations with the brothers and sisters who we fear are acting more out of love for money than love of God. If you see me acting out of love of money, I hope you would love me enough to say something to me. And I think you would want the same. So there's some well-known dangers here, though, right? So let's talk through them. I'm not, I'm not calling you all to be fruit inspectors. So the first danger is judging. We're quick to judge the financial decisions of others, aren't we? I mean, look, if your sibling goes and spends more money on a vehicle or on a house or even at the grocery store, how easy is it for you to judge? I'll never forget a friend called. And he said, hey, what you up to? I said, I'm going into Whole Foods. And his first response was, anybody shopping at Whole Foods either isn't given enough to the church or has too much to begin with. So we're, we're quick to judge, right? We're self-centered, and we often assume that everyone else has our reasoning, our motives, and our circumstances. We quickly apply moral characteristics categories to things that are merely differences in preference. So think about this. If, if you are married, think about the first few months of marriage. So the new wife grew up with parents who probably spent free or maybe spent freely on groceries. 
Meanwhile, the husband grew up with parents who spent freely on music lessons. They get married, and the husband is appalled at the wife's grocery spending. And the wife is appalled at the husband's expectations for educating kids. And both quickly accuse the other, in their hearts at least, of being selfish and ungodly. But in reality, what's happened is that both have merely assumed their own, their own family's habits and brought it into that marriage. It's okay to skip skimp on food to fund music lessons. Or it may be okay to eliminate lessons to buy better food. It just shows us the danger of becoming judges in our hearts. We don't want to do that. So here's two suggestions so that we can avoid wrong judgments of others' finances. First of all, don't assume motives. When someone does something you don't understand, don't presume why they did it. Instead, if you have a relationship with them, it allows you to ask them. And, and if you don't have that relationship with them, then perhaps you should just drop the matter and you should just assume the best. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, be filled with love, especially for one another. Second of all, the second danger is when you do speak to someone about their financial decisions, make sure that your motivation is one of compassion and not disdain. So we don't say, how dare you do that? I'm going to show them how wrong they are, but rather the attitude should be what we see in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. The second danger is the danger of pride. Remember in Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says that our motive in giving should not be the praise of men, right? His focus is not the secrecy for secrecy's sake. So, you know, the, the idea, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. It's not so much that it's about secrecy as much as it is the motive of our heart. One time I was talking to my brother, and he says, uh, he was asking me what I was up to, and I was trying to do something that was charitable, and I, I told him what I was involved in. And he said, well, there goes your reward. So <laughs> it's not so much about the secrecy as much as it is about the motives of our heart. So maybe your discussion of your budget begins with a discussion about how much you want to impress others when you give. Or maybe due to where your heart is, you don't even get to the budget, but you talk about your struggle with pride, right? It's a heart issue. So how can we look at this from a positive perspective? How do we look at this from a positive perspective? Like so many other areas in our life together as a church, I'd love to see us learn to talk in specifics about our financial choices, even while our relationships exude the grace that they should. So often the moment someone becomes specific with their criticism of us, we're quick, quick to dismiss it and just say it's legalistic. But that's ridiculous. And it's not how the Bible uses the term. There's no reason why we cannot be highly specific in our encouragement and exhortation at the same time, be overwhelmed with the grace that God shows us in that. So I'd love to see mature brothers and sisters in Christ helping those who are new or even weak in this area, both with, with advice and, and, when appropriate, with gifts, so that the lack of money would not constrain anyone's fruitfulness in God's kingdom. I'd love to see us quick to confess areas of struggle with money, quick to encourage in this area of our lives. After all, the world loves to brand finances as merely private and personal. But there should be a culture of godly transparency that could revolutionize our approach to money. And I think we should pray and work to that end. Any questions?
um, when I say transparency, I mean that we should be willing to verbally share um, our, our, what we're doing with our, our money with one another. So transparent, we're just clear and open. That's how I was using it. It's a good. It's a good picture. Any anybody else have any questions? Yes, sir. All right, hold on. I got lost on the first part of your statement. <laughs> what was the second part? The wanting and waiting. Yeah. Going back to that, uh, how do you take the waiting out of wanting? You know, I don't know if I'm going to answer this question the right way, but, I, you know, it goes back to that Steve Martin skit. If you don't have the money today, don't buy it. Yeah, the credit card, you know, the best, um, it's not necessary, right? And, and I, hate to quote, I hate to quote the individual, but I really liked what he said. He said, you know, if you have issues with your credit card, freeze it in a block of ice. And, uh, and then when you, when you want to use it, you got to sit there and wait for that ice to melt before you can use it, you know? So if you, if you don't have the money to buy it today, you don't buy it. We're going to talk some more about debt next week. And, th- and then following up with that, um, after we talk about debt, we're going to talk about materialism, which I think gets to the heart of that question. Does that help? <laughs> Me too, brother. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't know. That was this really good. I don't know if everyone heard that, but the godliness with contentment is of great game. That's in that First Timothy four passage, and just the idea that even as Christians, um, fighting for that contentment with with what the Lord's given us, that we're stewards over, um, that 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 leads really just to flourishing and fruitfulness. And he pointed out that even in marriage is one of the biggest causes for arguments. And perhaps even divorce is the discontentment that, that really begins in our heart, but that is manifested by how we treat money. So let's pray. Let's close out with prayer. And specifically, um, think about in our prayer and just how in our relationships as we leave here, how, does, how, does, how we think, how we spend, what we have to say to one another, reveal about our hearts and uh, the glory of God. As always, if you've got a question, and if you even have any of those micro questions, level questions about, about budgeting, some people ask questions, you feel free to email me. Uh, and then Clay's a genius on this. So email him too. And um, we're happy to answer any questions. Let's pray.